Welcome to What She Said on 105.9 The Region. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. In case you didn't get enough carbs last week between the stuffing and the mashed potatoes, then you'll be happy to hear that today is National Pasta Day. And if you don't feel like whipping up something fancy tonight, I believe that KD might count. No matter what you've decided for dinner, though, I'm glad you've joined me for the lunch hour today because I have a fantastic lineup of guests today, starting with Michelle O'Day, one of the five commissioners of the government's national inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Michelle joins me to discuss her role in that inquiry, what still needs to happen in Canada to improve the lives of the Indigenous community, and the recent heartbreaking death of Joyce Eshaquan that has put a bright spotlight on systemic racism. It seems like there are no easy decisions this year, and that includes Halloween, which is only two short weeks away. To send the kids out or not is every parent's dilemma right now, except for Julie Cole, that is, who has already decided her kids can go forth and collect as much candy as they would like. Julie joins me to share how she came to this decision and why we should all remain judgment-free no matter what people decide. Judy Rebick is one of Canada's most outspoken feminists and has been fighting for the rights of women, minorities, and the working class since the 1960s. She is also the focus of a new documentary called Judy vs. Capitalism, which is being premiered during the 2020 Rendezvous with Madness Arts Festival this week. She joins me to discuss a little bit about her history and what it was like to be a part of this documentary. Lori Nickel wants you to forget everything you think you know about those best before dates on food and stop wasting. As the CEO of Second Harvest, Lori wants everyone to know that it's not food shortages that are the problem, but food systems. We have more than enough food to feed everyone, but we need to address the real problems first. This is an enlightening interview everyone should hear. Anne Brody has reviews of a whole new lineup of shows and movies, including Totally Under Control, one of the year's most powerful documentaries, which puts the Trump response to the COVID crisis under the microscope, and a remastered version of Memories of Murder from the director of last year's smash hit Parasite. Finally, I'm joined by Dr. Jim Withers, who has been treating the homeless where they live, under bridges, along riverbanks, and in tent cities. He shares why he sees the street as a classroom for his students, where they learn not only medicine, but humanity, and how he's expanded his program to over 15 cities around the world, including Toronto. It's another full hour here at What She Said, so let's get rolling right now on 105.9 The Region. Michelle O'Day is a Canadian politician and Native Canadian activist. She served from 2004 through 2008 as Associate Deputy Minister at the Ministry of Relations with Citizens and Immigration of the Quebec government, where she was in charge of the Secretariat for Women. In 2017, she was appointed as one of the five commissioners of the government's national inquiry of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. The inquiry's final report was delivered to the federal government in June 2019. 
it included an incredible 231 calls for justice, many of which included police reform and increased oversight. Welcome to the show, Michelle. Wait to you. So that must have been an incredibly difficult time for you being part of that inquiry and listening to the testimony of, of all those families and experts. How many months did it take you to listen and gather all that you needed to pull together the final report? This journey, I would say I will never forget and I will always carry uh, the tears, the strength, but also the hope of uh, the family and people that came and shared their truth to us. And it was a 33 months, seven days, per week, an everyday commitment. It was, it was very intense and still today, I have to be honest. Yeah, and so obviously this week in particular, we had the news of Joyce Ekeshwan uh, that, that hit home and, and did that stir up a lot of emotion for you? It yeah. did, you're so right. And uh, it's exactly what happened when we saw the video, many of us, and it happened that it came also from former staff of the National Inquiry who gave me that information or share that. And it, 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 it was, it was, I cried. The anger and the unbelievable, you know, what's going on uh, was, was there and also was, oh my God, what she's showing to the world is what we've heard each time we cross the country and met with the families but they didn't have that video or they didn't have that social media platform to bring in light of what happened today so to them so i was shocked but i quickly came back and said okay i have to do something okay so you've been speaking with the family then and and you are tomorrow traveling to the community exactly yes so uh we we met with the family the following day of uh, the vet and uh, and tomorrow it's the ceremony. So we will go uh, give the last, you know, virtual hug or love to, to her and her seven children, her husband left behind and also all the community left behind. So yeah, uh, my, my granddaughter who is that same, from that same nation, her and I will go there, yeah. Okay, so let's go back to the report a little bit then. So mm -hmm. there were 231 recommendations. We are uh, 15, 16 months past when you gave their final report. How many of those recommendations that you know of have been actioned or, or addressed? I hope they are, uh, but for, for, from where I'm sitting right now, I do not know exactly the number. So it's a good question, I think, that needs to be asked to the federal government but also to each province and territory. This inquiry was very, very unique in a sense where it was also uh, inquiries with each province and territories. So not only with the federal government, but also with the Quebec, Manitoba, Ontario, and so on and so on. So they have also ordered us to do that exercise and now how much they did implement, there's nothing clear or I'm not aware. Okay. You know, this year, I think if anything, it's highlighted for all of us, the issue of systemic racism, which some people may not have understood, uh, but I think we all, many of us have a, a broader understanding of it now. What, what actions need to be taken right now 
um, as far as you're concerned, um, you know, when it comes to policing indigenous communities? Well, to recognize the, that there is systemic discrimination or systemic racism, it's already a step to take. Uh, you like it or not, we have to recognize that. Uh, also, what we need also to, to, to do, as an example, you brought the, the policing on policing. Uh, there is a good example here in Quebec where there is a shift. It's slow, but it's there where the uh, college and CJEP, we call here in Quebec, will be offering um, a, a, a course to become the next police or RCMP or SQ police but with a strong component on indigenous uh, reality issue, culture, and also they will have to do their training in the community. So the next Quebecois or Canadian who will take that course at that college will be already sensitive or aware about who we are and how we live today. It doesn't exist anywhere else. And that's the shift that we need to have right now. So we won't have any situation, I hope, where I didn't know about them or why should I do this for them and so on and so on. Now, I, I'd like to get a general sense of how you feel about the future. Are you filled with hope or after a week like this week, are you, are you concerned that maybe things are not going to change at all? I was very concerned that things will not change when we gave the report, we presented the report, but also after I reminded myself the courage of the people that came out and spoke for the first time or share again their truth to us and see how Canada was shaken how the international community reacted the, the same day we, we, we tabled the, uh, presented the report. From that, I said, oh my God, women were able to shake a country. Women were able to shake an entire planet. So I, I, I came back with that hope. I came back with the optimist we say in French where you and I are making that different. And that's huge to me. We need movement, we need action. And when I saw that huge wave for my colleagues or friends from the black community, I was proud and I was like, yes, we have to do that. But at the same time, we don't have that kind of wave. We don't have that kind of support, not to complain or to denounce. It's just that it seemed far for many people because we don't have that huge mobilization in the south or huge organization of people uh, in the south and with uh, Joyce Echaquan I'm glad that I was wrong okay to see that everybody I see on the street everybody I see on my social media platform say what can we do we love you guys we want to do better and that for me was like oh now people know that we are also like uh, George Floyd, another uh, sad situation, but here in Canada. 
Yeah, it's an incredibly heartbreaking video and situation. And I, and I, if, if anything is good to come out of that, I hope that it, you know, it, it, it helps change things mm. and, and that people start to recognize the systemic racism that exists within Canada. Um, thank you for joining me today, Michelle. I hope that you will join me again. Uh, I'd like to continue these conversations. I think they're very important. Uh, so, but if people want to know more about you, um, can they find you somewhere online? Yes, Facebook. Uh, thank God there's translation uh, application, I guess, on Facebook or Messenger. Yeah, I have a public Facebook and a personal page and uh, Twitter or things like that. Sorry, but yeah, they, they, they can reach me there and I'll do my best to speak English. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. We're going to put those links up um, on the video that we make from this interview uh, so that people can find you and connect with you online. Mm, merci, thank you. They say time heals everything, but I'm still waiting. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 1059 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. We are quickly approaching one of 2020's most controversial holidays, Halloween. It's hard to believe we're here, but virtual battle lines are being drawn as parents set up camp firmly on either the cancel Halloween side or let the kids eat candy side. Julie Cole is a recovered lawyer, mom of six, and co-founder of Mabel's Labels. She is a serial entrepreneur, regular television contributor, published author, and sought-after speaker and MC, as well as a digital influencer and blogger. She is also letting her kids go trick-or-treating this year, and that's what we're discussing today. Welcome to the show, Julie. Oh, thanks for having me, Candace. So I imagine you didn't come to this decision lightly, but why are you letting your kids go trick-or-treating this year? Look, um, I have to admit, my kids are a little bit older, the ones who are going out, they're tweens. Um, I have three kids who are at university. They are not trick-or-treating. <laughs> um, but you know what? It just came down to a couple of things. Um, clearly, I, I just managed their expectations and made conversations. So if they're not well, they're not going out. Uh, they will go out with their sibling in their sibling group. They're not going to be running willy-nilly from one house to the next. They'll have to stand back and wait till the other Halloween sibling group leaves the, you know, leaves the front step. It's like long gone are the days where they're all the children are running wild on the streets uh, at Halloween. And I'm just going to make sure that, you know, they're, they've got a, a a, a costume that doesn't require them fidgeting with their masks or fidgeting with anything and touching their faces all the time. We'll just do the hand sanitizer. And, you know what? They, they just know what the expectation is. So what do you think the, the, um, is going to happen on the other side of that for the homes? You know, we all usually have Halloween candy. Uh, yeah. I've personally made the decision. I'm turning the lights out and sitting in the basement. Yeah. So how do you think that's going to work this year? Uh, for the kids that are out trick-or-treating. Right, yeah, there's gonna be fewer houses for sure. And I think that's fair. If you're not comfortable with having little trick-or-treaters come to your house, you turn that light off and you do your own thing. I think that's absolutely acceptable. And I don't think there should be any judgment around that. 
and the kids will know if the lights are out like they do every Halloween, not to, not to, uh, not to go there. But I do think for people who, cause there's a lot of people, I know we spoke with, uh, in our neighborhood group, we have a neighborhood Facebook group and the discussion's been had. And a lot of people do love seeing the little trick-or-treaters come around and they'll just come up with safer ways to distribute the candy. There's talk about, you know, a table at the end of the driveway with little goodie bags. There's using long tongs and making sure that, of course, um, trick-or-treaters are wearing not Halloween masks, but proper masks. And also that people distributing candy are also wearing their masks. Yeah, and I think that's the biggest thing this year is obviously that no judgment zone. Uh, you know, don't judge the parents that let their kids out. And obviously don't judge the parents that keep their kids in, right? That's right. Absolutely. And you know what, there's, a, if you're not comfortable, you are the best qualified and most qualified to do what's right for your family. Uh, for me, I came to this decision because I was like, my kids are going to school every day. And I felt like that was just a higher risk activity than being outside. And I thought if this can be done safely, I'd rather stick with the tradition. And I, I'm confident it can be done safely for my family. But if you're not, there are many other things you can do. You can have a family scary movie night. You can have a, you know, a la uh, Easter money Halloween hunt around your house or, or, you know, have a little pretend campfire in the living room and, and, and share scary stories. There are alternatives and, and that's okay. Whatever works for you, that's, that's what works for you and you go with it. So how are you planning to give out candy then to the kids that come to your door? Yeah, I'm going to do the, um, the table at the end of the driveway and put out some pre- pre-made um, goodie bags that will be spread out along the table and I'll hand sanitizer there and that sort of thing. So I will, I will do it, uh, do it safely, but I do want to remind parents too that, you know, whatever you decide, you know, our kids, they're resilient. This is, they will have fun. New traditions can be made. Old traditions can be maintained, whatever you're comfortable with, just do it safely. And remember that our little guys can, uh, they've had to deal with a lot. And, you know, I often say that, through this whole COVID-19 pandemic, we have, we have recognized and realized how resilient our little ghouls and goblins really are. <laughs> you know, it's funny you say that. It's, it, my daughter and I had this conversation this morning uh, about, you know, making new traditions and they're not right. all bad. I mean, That's some of right. them are actually fun and we are finding fun new ways to adapt to things. I mean, honestly, um, I think we're probably going to have our Christmas decorations up November 1st this year because all bets are off. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and you're right. There will be new tr traditions because let's face it, we can't be doing things like album bombing anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's a little bit of a, that's, that one's gone. That was always weird. And now to even imagine that we like in these times to think we used to have a bunch of kids sticking their faces in water trying to grab apples is just so disgusting. You know, it's a, uh, yeah, so there will be a lot of changes traditions and, and that's okay. But I do, again, back to the trick-or-treating thing, I feel a little more comfortable with it because again, it is outside. I'd rather that than them get together with friends for a movie night or go to a Halloween party. Like I'm trying to avoid, avoid indoor things. So that's why I'm feeling a little comfortable with the trick-or-treating. Amazing. Okay. So if people want to follow you, cause you always have good advice, obviously with six kids, you have seen it all. So <laughs> where can they connect with you? For sure. Well, my blog lives on our Mabel's Labels website, which is www.mabelslabels.com. You can find me on Instagram, cole.julie, Twitter, Julie Cole, Facebook. I'm pretty findable. <laughs> okay, incredible. Thanks so much for joining me today, Julie. Thank you, Candice.
Judy Rebick is a feminist social activist, author, broadcaster, and public speaker. She has championed the rights of women, minorities, and the working class since the 1960s. She was a member of the NDP's Waffle Caucus and a pro-choice spokesperson for the Ontario Coalition for Abortion Clinics and rose to national prominence as the president of the National Action Committee on the Status of Women. She is also a best-selling author of Heroes in My Head and was the founding publisher of Rabble.ca. And now she is the focus of a Super 8 documentary called Judy versus Capitalism that opens the 2020 Rendezvous with Madness Arts Festival. Welcome to the show, Judy. Thank you very much. So tell me then, what is the premise of Judy versus Capitalism? <laughs> well, you'd have to ask Mike Holboom, the director of the film for that. But I think the way I think about it, because it's, it is an experimental film, it's part documentary, part experimental film. So it's not linear in the way that a regular documentary would be. And I think what it is is a portrait of me as a person, as an activist. And uh, in a way, it's a portrait of a generation of women who grew up in a time when women had almost no rights to um, create a women's, what we called at the time a women's liberation movement. So I think that's part of it. And the other part of it, which is um, why it's leading off the rendezvous with madness, is that when I was um, most engaged in a public way in the women's movement is also when I was recovering from childhood sexual abuse and found out that I was dissociative. Um, and in fact had what you called then multiple personality syndrome. So, um, so that's the story and it's told in six chapters in the film. So these chapters are sort of snippets of times in your life. Is that correct? Yes. So I watched the trailer um, of it and it showed you in a subway station. I found that story, um, I found it interesting, but also a little bit alarming because you'd never told anybody that story before. So just briefly, if you can just tell listeners what that little section is about. Well, I was standing on the subway platform at the museum station, which is usually quite empty. And um, this man started yelling at me, you baby killer. This is in the middle of the pro-choice struggle. And um, I, took, I was taking uh, Tai Chi at the time uh, because I had gotten some death threats and threats of violence. So I, had taken, I was taking Tai Chi as a way to defend myself. And they teach you in Tai Chi to take a stance. I think they call it the mountain stance. And when you take that stance, nobody can move you from your spot. So I took that stance and then the guy pushed, tried to push me. And I think he was trying to push me onto the train track. But I was able to take the stand. And then when the train came, I ran into the train. And um, I never told anybody about that. Uh, that, that must have been a very scary moment uh, yeah, for you. Like I, yeah, it was very scary. But like I say, I was very dissociated from my feeling. So I was really actually fearless. That's one of the reasons I was able to do the work is that I didn't feel fear. So of course, it was traumatizing. Like even when I told Mike that story, and I don't think I'd ever told that story, I felt fear then. I felt the fear I didn't allow myself to feel back in the day today. I have to ask you, you know, you, you've been involved in, in a feminism, feminist movement for a long time. What you're witnessing now happening um, here and around the globe, a lot of alarm bells going off for you? Yeah, I mean, not just as a feminist, but as a socialist. I've been a socialist my whole life and as a citizen. Um, 
yeah, it's scary what's happening in the States for sure. In Canada, I feel um, we're at a turning point after post-COVID. On the one hand, we seen the importance of female leadership uh, in terms of the public health area, in terms of the best, uh, the country that had done the best with COVID have been women-led countries. And the countries that have done the worst is the countries run by bully, bully boys, you know, the most patriarchal of men. Um, but the, the turning point that we're reaching in terms of feminism is a lot of, it's women, it's mostly women who are staying home to school children when the schools close. Still, you know, 40 years later, it's still mostly women who are losing hours, more hours, more unemployment, more likely to not go back to work. And that's where childcare becomes central to make sure that women have work and also community support if the schools have to close some other forms of community support or financial support. And so that worries me because of course, women going into the workforce was absolutely central to the gains we made in, in, in terms of women's equality. And if we're pushed out of the workforce again, even by a virus, um, it could have very severe consequences on women's equality. So that's where I worry. In terms of the states, I'm worried about fascism in the states. I think that um, I wasn't willing to use that word until the last month or so. I would use neo-fascist, like fascist. But I think that what we see now is a genuinely fascist movement. And if Trump, whether Trump, Trump wins or loses, the consequences are going to be severe. And I don't think we're going to see stability in the United States for a long time to come. And that affects us. Absolutely. Um, oh, yeah, I'm quite worried. I'm quite worried. On the other hand, I'm very inspired by the Black Lives Matter movement, which is really the largest mass global mass movement we've ever seen. And I know from my own experience that those movements continue to impact on things for many well, I, years. I wish I had a lot longer to talk to you. You're, you're <laughs> absolutely fascinating, a wealth of information. But if people want to catch this, they can catch it uh, at Rendezvous with Madness uh, from October 15th to 25th. 25th entirely online uh, at workmanarts.com backslash rwm but if they want to follow up and learn more about you is there somewhere they can find uh information about you or connect with you um yeah i'm i'm on facebook uh you know if you want to find out about me uh, heroes in my head you'll find out more about you maybe they maybe even that you wanted to know and also 10,000 roses the making of the feminist revolution which i wrote more than 10 years ago but which is still available everywhere and is an oral history of second wave feminism and Excellent. uh yeah and the film you can see every night until i think the end of october um and it opens a festival live so if you want to see us live in the q a uh that'll be on thursday night Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today, Judy. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Previous episodes of What She Said on 1059theregion.com. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 1059 The Region. According to a recent report by Community Food Centers Canada, before COVID-19 hit, nearly four and a half million Canadians struggled to put good food on the table for themselves and their families. 
in the first two months of the pandemic, that number grew by 39%, affecting one in seven people. My next guest is a vocal and passionate champion of social and environmental justice issues related to food and is sought after internationally for her expertise. As CEO for Second Harvest, Canada's largest food rescue organization, Lori Nickel ensures over 20 million pounds of nutrient-dense surplus food is diverted to non-profit organizations every year. Welcome to the show, Lori. Thanks. How are you today? So let's talk about food rescue. I'd actually never heard that term before. So what do you mean by food rescue? Food rescue is, the reality is in Canada and globally, we produce far more food than we eat. There is actually no need for anybody to be hungry because the food is there. We have a systems problem. And what happens with that food is it goes into landfill. When it goes into landfill, it creates methane gas, which is a direct contributor to climate change. And uh, one of the easiest ways of mitigating climate is managing food waste. So when I talk about food rescue, it really is rescuing that food from landfill and making sure it gets to charities and nonprofits that need it. And that can be at the farm level, the distribution level, at the restaurant level, any business to business um, kind of connection. So how does that happen then? For example, would a restaurant sign up to be uh, part of your organization and then um, contribute to their food? Exactly. So we are unique in that we're not membership based, we're opt in, you must meet like certain terms and conditions. Um, and you can get a hold of us in different ways. You can email, you can call, or you can go on our, our, our app and online platform foodrescue.ca to sign up. So there's a myriad of ways of getting involved and we help with your, your food loss and waste, but also we make sure that the food is healthy, perishable and gets to charities. So how long has Second Harvest been around then? 35 years. Oh my. It's, uh, it was started 35, I think 30, almost 36 years ago by two women and a hatchback. And they had just been leaving a restaurant and they had food in one hand and a homeless person was on the street. And they said, well, this makes sense. Let's just make sure that someone gets to eat this food. And so for about 30 years, I'd say it was kind of a small Toronto charity. And about five years ago, we really shifted our focus to ensure that we had that environmental imperative and also that we could scale this business because the food is everywhere. So we shouldn't be just Toronto-centric. This needs to be national. And that's exactly what's happening. Okay. So you are a national organization now. So you're as far as BC and Nova Scotia? Yep. Iqaluit and everywhere in between. Okay, excellent. So tell me then about how you raise funds to run this organization. Are you a nonprofit? We are a charity. Yes, we're a charity. We work with other charities and nonprofits and we fundraise just like other charities and nonprofits do. We get individual uh, people giving us uh, funding. We have corporations and foundations. We are not a government subsidized organization, although we do get some government grants from time to time. Uh, most recently, we received about $11 million from the federal government to run the surplus food rescue program. So the federal government has seen the need for food rescue and created a program specifically for that. When the pandemic hit in uh, March, there was that uh, very unsettling feeling for a lot of Canadians going into grocery stores and seeing empty shelves and runs on products. Um, you say that that's, we don't really have a food shortage though. We have a food system problem. Oh, we sure do, uh, globally. In Canada, everywhere, we have a food systems problem. For, so I say that for a couple of reasons. 
One, yes, as a result of COVID, our food supply shifted because all of the hospitality and food service stopped. It meant that a lot of our products were packaged in larger formats. So you couldn't put it on the grocery shelf and the grocers hadn't ordered anticipating a pandemic because, you know, who anticipates a pandemic? So it wasn't that the food wasn't there. It might've been packaged differently, but they just had to adjust that. Um, but I think in that moment, everybody felt food insecure. Like everybody was like, oh, am I gonna have food for my family? Should I be hoarding this food? And people did. And the issue was really about the supply chain management, not we have no food. But why that's important is because in Canada, millions of people feel like that every day. And that's not because the shelves are empty, it's because they have no money to buy what's on the shelves. So the system's problem is people don't have the money they need to buy the food that they need, period. And so food security will never be solved by me giving people food. That will provide a meal, that will provide support, but food security is really about ensuring that Canadians have the means that they need to purchase the food that they need. And so we have to work, look at this in several different ways. Our food system is broken because we waste 58% of all the food that's produced for Canadians. So right away, that's a, we waste more food than we consume in Canada. Enough food for every Canadian to eat for five months for free. So we shouldn't be doing that. And we shouldn't be putting it in a landfill. That's a systems problem. So even at the end use, when we put it in landfill, there's GHGs associated with that, but there are also GHGs associated with, oh, sorry, greenhouse gases associated with every part of that supply chain, right? Like no farmer grows food to go in the garbage. No distribution center manages food to go in the garbage. So we've got a systems problem that I think could be pretty easily managed if we did one thing and everybody did it the exact same way. And that is measure it. Measure the food that your business is wasting and you will be able to figure out what the challenges are, why you're wasting it. There'll always be some waste, but we certainly can get a better handle on the amount that there is. You know, that's just something, you know, it's funny you mentioned that. I think about when I go to a restaurant and they serve me this whopping ridiculous portion that I can't possibly eat. Um, I know that in one in 10, that might please one person, but nine people are going to walk away not finishing it. Um, mm -hmm. Is that the sort of waste you're talking about when you talk about, you know, food waste in restaurants? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's one waste. I mean, restaurants typically don't have that much waste because their margins are so small. So we see it as the end consumer and we look at retail and go, oh, at that grocery store. But even that's only 5%. You've really got to look further up the supply chain. And, and why are we producing this much food? Well, part of it is because grocers want everything on their shelves to look pristine, right? And so you have to produce more because you might have a crop failure or you might have pests or something. So you produce more to ensure that you can meet that quota. But we've just keep perpetuating the same thing all the time. And then there's this other uh, challenge we have globally as well, but in Canada, and it's called best before dates, which have no bearing on safety. There are only five foods that expire in Canada and none of them um, are the ones that you're throwing away. So they are baby, food, baby formula, and sure, like an adult seniors, so they can have the nutrients that they need, same with the babies. Two by prescription only, <laughs> so you're not going to access those anyway and uh, another one is like protein bars and again it's related to the nutrients that you have it's not that the food goes bad it's that the nutrients get depleted and so if you're counting on that as a baby or as a senior and you're getting less nutrients 
then that could impact your health. But other than that, best before dates, all conservative, all food can be frozen, throw it in a freezer. Lots of people need food. So let's do what we can to make sure that they can access it. So at home then, so for just for the individual person then, that's probably the first step they could take is to maybe start ignoring some of those best before yes. dates. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yes, and don't look like this. Yes, just yes. <laughs> they're, they're, they're not based on food safety. Like your common sense is your common sense. If something smells off, don't eat it. Uh, you know, if you've had meat in the fridge for too long, don't eat it. It's about temperature control as well, right? So if you have meat, throw it in a freezer. Any, every food can be frozen, full stop, every one of them. And as soon as you freeze something, it's like that's the date. Yeah, it was funny, you know, when the, when the pandemic hit, that's what I, I, I actually started freezing milk uh, because I was getting groceries every two weeks. And it was something that I hadn't done, uh, you know, but I remembered back when I was a child, my mom used to do that a lot. Uh, so there are a lot of things that we could do that we, you know, maybe we're just not familiar with anymore, but that we need to get back in touch with for sure. Yes, yes. <laughs> so if people want to know more then, where can, I, do you have tips on your website for people? Uh, we do. So if you can go to secondharvest.ca for tips or foodrescue.ca. So if you're a food business and you have surplus food, go to foodrescue.ca, sign up, give that food to a community that needs it. Anywhere in Canada, we can connect you. Um, but if you're worried about your household waste, and we all are, then there's lots of tips on there you can grab. And we actually have um, a lot of webinars and free online education so that you can access that information as well. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining me today. Happy to. This was fun. <laughs> have a lovely day. Let me live that fantasy. Joining me now for Saturday night at the movies with more entertainment to keep you busy as we, oh, I guess we're a week into our second wave. Uh, so we need lots of entertainment. Anne, what do you got for oh, us? Oh, we've got it. Check out the website afterwards because we're just going to cover a few of these things. But the most astounding documentary I've seen so far this year is totally under control by the Oscar winning Alex Gibney. And he looks at the Trump response to COVID beginning from the Wuhan uh, infection, the first case in the States, the first case in, in Seoul, South Korea, and how you compare their outcomes. Honestly, it's breathtaking. Um, Jared Kushner, for instance, in order to get PPEs, he got together 10 volunteers around 20 years old to try and get through these, this maze of contacts in the US government and its contractors. Ridiculous. Plus, they had to sign NDAs. One came forward as a whistleblower. There's plenty of whistleblowers, too, including do a doctor who quit the White House team because he couldn't bear the lies and cover-up that was going on. It's breathtaking, and I'm so glad that it's coming out before the election. It's on digital platforms now. Yeah, I feel like, you know, right now, it's just we're, we're, we're being hit with a barrage of news in October. It's just a nonstop October surprise uh, for the Trump's presidency. Uh, but that's a good thing. Better now uh, than later. Uh, but you also have a movie from the director of Parasite. 
Yes, Bong Hong Jo, and it's it's spectacular. It's called Memories of Murder. Now, my friend Gilbert told me about this film in 2004, Memories of Murder. It's been remastered and updated with a new ending. It was about uh, originally about uh, a serial killer rapist who was terrorizing South Korea, a certain province there. And these three sort of inept detectives, including the one who's the lead in Parasite, um, follow the case and just mishandled everything that they saw. And women, women's bodies were just piling up everywhere. The film is so creatively made. It's as original as Parasite. Less elegant, more playful, perhaps, um, despite the subject matter. But you see hints of what's to come in the future in, in, in his uh, filmmaking. And um, literally, the uh, the new ending stopped me cold. It <laughs> just freaked me out. <laughs> so is this is this based on a true story, though? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, definitely need to watch that. So where can we catch that? That is, um, it was meant to be in theaters this week. So now it's opening on on digital platforms. I just found out uh, next week. So okay. keep out. This is a good warning. Mem uh, memories of murder. All right. So you've got Lily James in uh, a movie called Rebecca. I really, I really adored Lily James. Uh, I don't know why. I, I think she's great, but um, so I just <laughs> she's I just very like winning. Yeah, I just yeah. like her. Uh, so yeah. tell us about Rebecca. Well, Rebecca is is based on the Daphne du Maurier novel, the gothic thriller about a, a woman who is who meets a guy, a very wealthy man, played by Army Hammer, um, in Italy, and goes home with him. He's just lost his wife. So the specter of his wife is everywhere. She's being intimidated and gaslighted by the housekeeper, played by Kristen Scott Thomas. And it's all about Rebecca, Rebecca, the late wife. Um, so we follow her journey, trying to figure out what this woman's magic was. And it's, it's as I say, it's a suspense thriller. So it's, it's really fun to watch. And the settings are spectacular in Italy and on the uh, White Cliffs of Dover in England. Um, and it's a good watch. And Lily James, she's so sweet. You just want, your heart goes out to her being in this position. She is. And Kristen Scott Thomas is Ooh. sort of chilling, <laughs> isn't she? She does chilling well. I've interviewed her. <laughs> so in real life, maybe? <laughs> yeah, she's very, uh, she's very, you know, statuesque and She's excellent. So that, okay. So, and then I was surprised, not, I guess not surprised, but I mean, no grass growing under feet, social distance, a, a, um, a new show. It's an anthology series on Netflix and it's really good. It has, uh, it's eight episodes. Each one is a different family. Some have celebrities, some don't, but they're all shot at home by these families. And for instance, it's a comic one concerning a Zoom funeral, quite comic elements in it. Um, you know, the mourning, the family problems, the, the, uh, the funeral director trying to come into the frame occasionally and say, do you want this or not? And then the one that broke my heart and I actually wept about it stars uh, Peter Scav Scaravino from Law & Order. He and his real life son are in one room in their tiny New York flat. His wife, um, played by an actress, is in the other room and the, the feeling we get is she's dying from COVID. So it's pretty moving. And, uh, <laughs> but everyone is so spectacularly different from the other. It's really innovative and creative and I loved it. Okay, so, and where's that available, Anne? 
on Netflix. Wonderful. Okay, so you've got all of these and more reviews up on what she said, uh, talk.com, uh, and you'll be back next week with more. I will. Have a good week. Thanks, Anne. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. As Toronto and the GTA begin to see a steady rise in COVID-19 cases, a pandemic that is exacerbating the costs of operating shelters, the city continues to grapple with strategies to house the homeless and prevent further outbreaks. For almost three decades, Dr. Jim Withers has been treating the homeless where they live, under bridges, along riverbanks, and in tent cities. What's more, he sees the street as a classroom for his students, where they learn not only medicine, but humanity. Dr. Withers' ultimate goal is to provide every person experiencing homelessness with medical care that comes directly to them with the message that says, you matter. Welcome to the show, Dr. Withers. Thank you so much. So you're called a pioneer of street medicine. Why is that? I guess I came up with the term <laughs> street medicine. Uh, that helped. But um, I think there, it's, a, it's a global movement now. And there were people doing it before me. Uh, and I think I'm just the person that sort of obsessed about spreading it and, and sharing it and making it into a field. So I, I watched a video of you um, from a CNN report where they did a profile of you and you're out on the streets and you're delivering medication and treatment um, right to them. Where are you getting the funding though for, for this medication and, and, and to help them? Like uh, many, many programs, we started with nothing, um, basically stealing bandages from the hospital and stuff. Uh, but over the time, the community rallies around something that's so um, compelling. It's actually a challenge to the health industry here. Uh, and uh, we get tons of volunteers. So we get uh, uh, donations and things from which we can tap into for those needs. So your program, though, does help um, alleviate the burden on hospitals, right? Yes. Um, it's not our primary purpose. Our primary purpose for me is, um, as you said, uh, I think people deserve healthcare that comes to them uh, in a way that, that works. But uh, we see in my prior career, uh, speaking maybe to your audience better, uh, was with domestic violence. And uh, it was the experiences of the women that I saw in a brief but very important time in my career um, where their needs were ignored, their, their experiences were ignored, um, that, you know, the, uh, the ability to kind of get closer to where a person's really living, honor their strengths and partner with them to help them find a way to a healthier place. That's essentially what I feel the classroom of the streets is able to do. Um, and so that's first and foremost, but in both of the populations, victims of domestic violence and in the homeless, they do cause a disproportionate amount of expenses to the health system because their suffering is not being actually addressed. Tell me about the, this is a global movement. You've, you've now expanded this to 15 countries. Well, probably more. <laughs> um, it's on every continent. Um, 
And uh, I started this before there was really much of an internet at all. Uh, I didn't have a cell phone in those days. But, you know, so the technology that has come about has been helpful in spreading. But I've actually done an awful, awful lot of traveling to every part of the world. Um, and I love it. I love going and seeing people who are passionate about helping their sisters and brothers under bridges. And, um, and when they see that they're not alone, then they get really encouraged. So, yeah, I've been a, doing my Johnny Appleseed thing. Of course, we can't ignore what the biggest issue is right now is COVID. So how is that changing how you're helping people? Well, I think we're very well prepared in the sense that we, street homelessness is a chronic disaster. So we're always kind of dealing in a disaster mode um, with folks. The relationships that we have with them are very, very important in being able to connect with them and help them uh, be safer. But then we bring things that we know are very useful, such as hand-washing stations and toilets and uh, bringing food because they can't get into soup kitchens and just things that are real practical. Um, and then we can educate the rest of the community about uh, their needs and coordinate with the city uh, on screening, testing, and providing places for them in case they uh, come down with it. So you started as sort of an army of one. How many people do you have now helping you uh, with this? Locally in Pittsburgh, um, I think we have a, over 50 employees now uh, in all the different housing and the things that we do. Um, and then the volunteer pool is also pretty darn large. Uh, retired doctors and nurses and medical students and everything. So, you know, I'm sure we have several dozens of those. It's a, it's a great opportunity if you ever heard this stone soup story. You start something and people begin bringing what they have to the pot. Um, and so that, in addition to helping people in need, it also uh, brings community together in a really cool way. Okay, so if people want to uh, know more and if they want to connect with you and help out uh, the locally in Toronto, uh, where can they find uh, more about your um, operation? Well, um, the best would be the website streetmedicine.org. Uh, and then if you guys can wait a year, uh, we're having our international meeting next fall in Toronto. Uh, so we'll be bringing people from, hopefully, from all over the world to Toronto to see the great work that Inner City Health Associates and others up there are doing. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Weathers. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That's it for What She Said for this week. Stay up to date with our newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidradio.com and be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson on Apple and Spotify for extended podcasts. I'll be back next week with more What She Said on 105.9 The Region. Put up a parking lot. <laughs> Previous episodes of What She Said on 1059theregion.com.